Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey friends, welcome to another episode of the Tennis and Bagels podcast. And we have just wrapped up Indian Wells, um, the first phase of the Sunshine Double in March. And uh, it's a pretty big event on the calendar. And uh, I, I happened to go there for two days um, as well in person. So that was a great experience. But joining me to recap it all as we're done with both the men's and women's, men's and women's singles finals today. And it's officially complete. But here joining me is, is my good friend Owen. How are you doing today, Owen? I'm good. Um, I'm sorry I've been away for such a long time. This is like the first one I've done in what feels like forever. Um, but I've been in, in Australia for some study abroad. Um, and so that has made uh, it difficult with the time change. But yeah, excited to be back and breaking down Indian Wells. Yeah, great. It's it's great to have you back on this podcast after quite a few weeks off. And I'm sure you're enjoying your time in Australia. <laughs> yeah, it, but, it's been great. But yeah, let's get let's get right into it. So obviously let's start with... Let's start with the men's. Let's start. Let's start with Carlos Alcaraz. You know he won all six matches here. Didn't drop a set, and absolutely, that that final. I mean, just the amount of options this kid has to win points, and the way he's going about his career right now. I mean, it's just so impressive to watch. Yeah, I don't know how you're supposed to beat him right now. To be honest, I mean, before the final, I was thinking like, you know, Medvedev defends so well just covers the court like a blanket he has that wingspan and in the past like you can kind of make Alcaraz rush sometimes so maybe Alcaraz is going to get frustrated he can't hit through Medvedev on the slow court and he'll make a billion errors um as we know that is not what happens he destroyed Medvedev um who was on like a, a 19 match winning streak is that right yep 19 matches three titles like you know yeah three different yeah. time zones and hey yeah. um and I mean, not that we needed this match to prove this, but like this is pretty clear cut proof that like Alcaraz is a better player than Medvedev. He's got a better forehand. Um, he probably defends as well. Um, I think he's probably a better aggressive returner. Um, he gets more pace on the backhand. Um, he's got way better touch. Um, and he just has more ways to win points. Like when you see Medvedev um returning from way back. He'll hit the crap out of a forehand, but um, Alcaraz is so nimble that he can just hit a stretch volley, even if uh, Medvedev's return has a good angle on it. Um, and yeah, Medvedev just didn't really seem to have any ideas after Alcaraz showed he could um, he could win. Um, so yeah, I mean, I I don't know. Like, how do you beat him, Bonds? Do you have any theories? Well, you know, coming into this match, I thought I thought the same as you. I thought, you know, Medvedev's shot tolerance, his ability to absorb all the pace, the way he can defend, you know, almost Djokovic-esque when he's in when he's in this kind of a mode yeah. on this kind of a hot streak. 
I thought, okay, you know, we might see Alcaraz just kind of being himself for a few games, like he did, uh, let's say, in the first set against Sinner, where he was a little patchy for three or four games in a row, and eventually, you know, pulled off some amazing shots in the tiebreak, and then, and then uh, managed to win that one in straights. But I, I just felt like, um, you know, it, it was gonna be it was gonna be impossible once I saw the first three games of this match, and, and Alcaraz quickly went up three love, and he just broke right away. It's almost like Medvedev's belief was just gone completely. I mean, he just broke Medvedev's will because here he was doing what he normally does, you know, stands way back on the return, tries to get, you know, gets it really deep and then, you know, forces you to, you know, go for extra on your ground strokes and just like go for lines and, you know, play in a manner that's that's disruptive and unconventional. Like that's how you have to be to, to beat him. And Alcaraz was just playing within himself and he was playing with a lot more patience than I've seen him play in, in the past. You know, in, in the past, he might've gotten a bit too trigger happy earlier in the rallies, might've been a little bit too ambitious going for shots that, you know, are amazing and he can obviously pull off. But, you know, that also comes with stretches of unforced errors. But in this match, he was he was going backhand to backhand with Medvedev and very patiently as well and then looking for the moment to pull the drop shot then looking for the moment to come in and sneak in on do a nice drop volley and then you know he just he's so good in the forecourt and it's not it's not just that he that he's good but he just knows exactly when to come forward and when to deploy which shot at the right time in the drop shot um he used it perfectly like exactly he he went into the match with like a clear cut plan and he executed it pretty much perfectly like you know yeah yeah I, and I think this is probably the main thing that makes Alvarez so hard to play. Is like he's having a moment with the drop shot. Like he's just figured out that he can make it work because he hits the he hits the ball so heavy, so fast from the baseline. So you have to back up to give yourself time to defend. But then that creates all the space for the drop shot, and you literally cannot cover both. Like you have a Medvedev who backs up, like, and he's going to defend really well. But like if you're ten feet behind the baseline, you can't get to the drop shot. At the same time, Medvedev can't really change plans because Medvedev is not someone who can stand glued to the baseline and half volley his ground strokes deep like Djokovic. So you kind of have to give Alcaraz like one or the other. Um, and if Alcaraz is on his game, then like you're kind of screwed either way. Um, so yeah, like I really don't know what you do because like talking about Djokovic again, um, I really think that's the one way you can kind of maybe blunt Alcaraz's game a little bit, which is like stand in close, take everything on the rise. And that way you can sort of redirect his pace and get in closer so that you don't have to run as far for the drop shot. But even Djokovic, when they played in Madrid, um, Alcaraz like destroyed him with the drop shot. I think he won like 15 out of 20 points with it. Um, Mm -hmm. And so like, if that's how it works against Djokovic, like I don't think anyone else has a chance to really take that away from him. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I think it's a pretty terrifying proposition for any opponent at this point. Yeah, and you know, last year this time we sat in here and we tried to look for holes in his game, you know. We tried to see, okay, <laughs> is there anything else that, you know, that maybe he can get? You know, because Ferrero says after the US Open that he's at 60% of his peak, which if that's the case, yeah. that is that is freaking scary for everyone. But like, right. you know, and, and we thought, okay, maybe the serve. You can get a few more, you know, he can up the miles per hour. He can definitely improve the placement. He can get a few more free points behind it, make his life a little easier so he's not having to work so hard. Well, guess what? In this tournament, he did that, you know? His yeah. average his average first serve speed went way up in, uh, in the center match. Um, by way up, I mean seven or eight miles per hour. But that, as you know, that makes a big deal in these conditions. And I just, I feel like he was the only one all week who could hit through these courts. And yeah. like, like hit through them, he did. And, and, then, and then on top of that, 
how do you get the ball by him? Because his speed is just <laughs> outrageous. His speed, anticipation, like his flexibility, like on the stretch, like, and then, you know, that one point that he played against center where he just basically, you know, he went back and then he hit that ridiculous lob and then, you know, and he does the, the, he makes it look so easy. You know, he does the like backhand overhead and then center comes in and actually hits a pretty good slice, like pretty deep, you know? And yeah. Then, right on the line too. Yeah. Like, pretty much on the back of the line and then how Chris hits this this Andy Murray esque lob and it just goes right. so far deep and you're thinking, okay, this surely this is out, but nope, it just catches the back of the line too. And it's like Yeah, it's just this is brutal. And you know, he beat it's important that he beat Felix, he beat Sinner, he beat Medvedev, and he beat these guys pretty comfortably. Like these were yeah. not, you know, super competitive matches at the end of the day. Right. Talking about his serve, Medvedev, who is one of the best returners on tour won 12 points on the return in the entire match and zero break points. So, I mean, yeah, the serve can get better, but, like, if it's already doing that on a slow court, like, maybe it doesn't need to get that much better. And also, since um, since everything else is so outrageously good, it's, like, it's not like anyone exactly exposes his serve, right? Like, I mean, when was the last time we saw someone, like, break him at will? Like, I don't know. Like, I can't really think of a great example. Like, um... Again, when he played Djokovic, and I think the conditions helped with this because it was in Madrid, so you get the the altitude and everything. Um, Djokovic broke him once in, like, this really, really long match. So, like, sort of like you said, like, I do think the serve can get better, but he knows how to cover that weakness and even work it to his advantage so well already um, that it's, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what you do against him. Yeah, I mean, I you know... The, the, he's he's one of those players that's just going to keep on because he has so many of the tools he has he has all the tools already so it's like it's just a matter of like shot selection decision making like discipline I feel like it's just about discipline because when he's you know when he's like locked in and in this kind of mode where there's really no there's really no one in the world that can hang with him from a speed and power standpoint I feel like like it, just the combination of his speed and power and touch I think it's the, the only one who can really challenge it is the form we saw from Djokovic in Australia. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see when they're when he's back in the clay court season in Monte Carlo or somewhere in Madrid and Rome. If these two do play each other, what does Djokovic do differently from the Madrid match? It's a great question. And like, I mean, I probably shouldn't be saying this about Djokovic, who, you know, I think is best ever to do it um, and has like game plan A, B, C all the way through Z. But like, I don't know that there is a lot that he can do differently. I think some people forget that in that Madrid match, um, Djokovic basically played him perfectly in the first set. He kept Alcaraz on the run constantly, so much so that uh, Djokovic was actually hitting the ball harder on average than Alcaraz, um, because Alcaraz was having to hit everything on the run. And so, and I remember watching that and thinking, okay, this is how you beat him. Like, Djokovic has figured out the game plan. But then as the match wore on, Alcaraz kind of figured him out and started... Um, doing a better job of dictating points, started hitting more drop shots, and Djokovic wasn't able to get out of that jail. Um, and so I almost wonder if Alcaraz has the momentum in that rivalry now, even though they've only played one match and Djokovic was still in the middle of his comeback. Um, if they're to play on clay again, I would favor Alcaraz. Yeah, and uh, he has so many more points to gain during the clay court season as well because he also lost early in Monte Carlo, didn't play Rome. And he kind of hit himself off the court in the first two sets against Serev and Roland Garros, and he wasn't able to come back right. there. So, 
Uh, and he looks pretty healthy now. Like, you know, remember how we were like kind of concerned about him, like physically? Yeah. Like after the Nori match, which in hindsight, it's like, how did he even get that close in that match? Because he was so clearly injured, he could barely even walk in between points. And then, you know, he started, even in that match, he showed like his absolute genius by getting it to 7-5 in the third. Yeah. Nori had to play almost perfectly. It was, I mean, that's the only match he's lost this year. And he's played three tournaments. He's made the finals of all three, like. Yeah, it's just amazing that he can take like three or four months off and just come back at this level and look better, pretty much better than ever. And I do actually think a slow clip, a slow hard court is probably his best surface. Um, okay, interesting. You know, just because uh, on, on the clay, you know, you're still slipping and sliding and you might, you know, he might be a little out of position movement-wise. Um, and then, you know, he can get even, he can get more out of the serve and he can hit through courts like this because he has the requisite power of both wings to like I mean he was literally rushing Daniel Medvedev like yeah, you, that's no, true you don't you don't actually do that like it's not right like you know in the average, even your average top five player doesn't rush Daniel Medvedev on his backhand like it's, it's yeah it's really and we saw like, it, in Dubai we saw Djokovic try to do that by like hitting the crap out of every ball yeah. and that was a fast hard court in. I know he was getting help from the court by and yeah you know, even then it was it was difficult like it's yeah, I mean, t- shifting gears a little to talk about Medvedev, um, what are your thoughts on him? Because I think he's obviously had this amazing winning streak, but I think it's hard not to look at this last match, and and maybe you can tell me this a little better about his serve. Um, I, I was telling you before we started recording, um, I slept through most of this match and just like tuned in at the end, and I've like yeah. caught up where I can since. But, um, y- you know, zero aces, two double faults. Um, seems like he didn't play that well, and I think a lot of that is down to the matchup, but... Like, what, what do you think this means for him? Um, obviously, this is going to be a tough matchup going forward. Yeah, I think the matchup is clearly going to be tough because you can throw the one that they played at Wimbledon out the window. That was yeah. a completely different outcome as almost two years ago. But um, but I think it was a very good week for him, like, just to get to the final, just because, you know, he was... He looked completely down and out in the Sparrow match, I think, that was in the fourth round. And he was down, yeah, and, right. you know, he lost the first set and then he rolled his ankle break point down in the in the second and it looked like he was his Indian Wells was pretty much done. I mean he was complaining about the courts and other slow courts and you know, I can't believe that they're hard it's non hard courts who are lying to me, you know, and this is yeah, you know, we we know we know all of the memeable stuff that he he did there. But like once he got through that match it actually he actually started playing more aggressive and he started getting more out of his surf. And he did that very well in the in his next few matches, particularly the Tiafu win and the Fukina match in the quarters. But in this match I just felt like Alcaraz Alvarez is such a good returner, much better than those players that I just listed. And yeah. and so he was getting nothing. I mean, I, I don't think... I, I have to look at the unreturned stats, but I'd be shocked if he won more than seven or eight points on unreturned serves. And that's like usually how he beats you because, you know, with that easy offense that he has with his serve, then that just frees up the rest of his game and he can just go well mode from the baseline. But in this match, he has no weapons to hurt Alcaraz with from the... You know, like just when you take away the serve... I feel like, you know, because his backhand is basically pace absorbing, redirecting, yeah. cannot miss. And then his forehand is basically like, that's the one that decides how well Daniel Medvedev plays. Like if he's injecting pace in his forehand and he's absolutely like, you know, taking big cuts and doing more than just redirecting, then he usually makes a headway. The thing is, how does he make headway on a slow court against Alcaraz? Um, yeah. You know, with that kind of, a, you know, backswing and just like just the way he produces his power like it's just you know unless he's coming to the net and then finishing off points which was really difficult for him in this match he was not comfortable up there 
even when he tried to, I think he tried to come in as a changeup. I actually like his backhand volley a little bit more than his forehand one. But I think his forehand one is just a bit off technically completely. And then his backhand, sometimes he can finesse it and make it work. Because <laughs> he can get down low and sometimes, you know, it just, like, he'll surprise you and hit a really good one. But in this match, there was just no easy points for him. Like, just none. And on top of that, he made more unforced errors. Like, I mean, you, you know, you can see he hit four winners. It took him until the sixth game of the match to hit a winner off the ground. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think, and he had zero aces too. So, yeah, first time in years that's happens to him on a, in, in a match, I think. Um, yeah. But, I, I mean, that, that unforced error set is it right there, right? Like, if you're not the most powerful player, then you have to be more consistent. So, it's, yeah. yeah I mean, he was almost trying to play overly, so he was almost trying to play overly offensive because he knew his normal, you know, pace absorbing game from the baseline wasn't going to do enough. So he was he was overplaying. He was actually like overhitting on his forehand, like trying to do way too much, and he was hitting it wide most of the time, which is like, mm-hmm. yeah, which means he's just pressing and struggling to really. And, and he couldn't he couldn't really turn it around. Like it was it, yeah. the match flew by in such a quick way that he just. I mean, Alcaraz was rolling through his service games, and he was barely losing points on his first serve. And there yeah. were times where he was going way out in the ad side, like almost you know the thing that he does, which is like close to the doubles alley. And then he does the he does the extreme kick serve. Yeah. I back and I thought that wasn't going to work against Medvedev because he stands so far back that he was just going to be able to time the ball really well and maybe even hit it down the line for a winner. But he just set up his next forehand and it was just business as usual. And I was like, okay, like he has that in his back too. So yes, yeah. and felt like a total mismatch. Right, and like b- before we move on to uh, the women's final, I wanted to get your thoughts on this. I I feel like they're very different types of baseliners and that like you know how there are players where if you get back a deep return you've yeah. you maybe haven't won the point already but you're close like against a server bot you get back a deep return and it's like okay you've got like what a 70 80 percent chance of winning the point now but then you also have players and i think alcaraz is in this camp where like if you get back a decent return it doesn't mean all that much really like if you get back an aggressive return and put him on the run that helps but i feel like yeah. even if medvedev gets the ball back to his alcaraz's feet alcaraz can like half volley it and then in a neutral rally it's just a matter of time before he goes on the attack again i kind of think the yeah. same thing about Djokovic. like when you have great defenders who are also powerful um even if you hit a deep return like it's not enough offense if that makes sense but i think against medvedev if you can kind of put him on the back foot, then you're going to be moving from corner to corner pretty soon. Um, And so I think in that way, like Alcaraz probably got more out of his deep returns than Medvedev, if that makes sense. I don't know if I phrased that coherently. I I understand what you're saying, like because Alcaraz also has the half volley and then he also has the drop shot if it's even a little bit short. So, and the thing is that Medvedev didn't really adjust his return position and when he did, he wasn't very successful because Mm -hmm. then, then his returns were landing short. And then when they land short, then then Alcaraz has a million options, and really only he will beat himself. And then you you might be able to like Medvedev wasn't really able to coax errors the way he normally does. Then he the way he baits you into mistakes, you know, by just being more consistent than you and just like just having much better rally tolerance. Like against Alcaraz, he just immediately took a rip at anything short, and it was just it was just game over because he has such good finishing skills in the forecourt, and that's what you need to beat Medvedev. Um, yeah, like I, I think a yeah. lot of the time, if you hit a mid-court return against Medvedev, that forehand is going to come back at you in that middle third of the yeah. court. And against Alcaraz, it's immediately flying to the corner. Um, yeah, that that's a key difference. I think. I also felt like all tournament Alcaraz's backhand was really good. 
Yeah. Uh, I mean, even in the center match where I thought, okay, you know, center might have the edge backhand to backhand. I mean, if it's just ground stroke, if they're just doing like target practice on ground strokes, you know, center actually hits a pretty clean ball, like over both wings and he, he, might, he might be able to win. But then when you take the explosiveness, you add the explosiveness and you add like the, you know, the genius, like lottery, move, lottery movement, or you add like the, just the touch and the feel and everything else. That's where Alcaraz really separates himself, I feel like. And even in the backhand to backhand exchanges against center, he was the one like being more offensive, you know? Yeah, Sinner was doing a good training in the first set. Being yeah. steady, but like the set point in the first set, I mean, he just ripped it. And that's kind of how he got the break um, against Medvedev in, in this match as well. It was a 95 mile per hour cross court backhand winner off of a pretty, you know, decent like return. It wasn't super short in the corner or anything. It was fairly deep, like close to the back of the baseline. And he still just took it early, ripped it. And I don't know. It was yeah. just so easy. It was so easy. So easy to be true. It's not something you can ever learn if you don't have that, I think. Like, Medvedev yeah. is never going to be able to do that. Um, most players on tour are never going to be able to do that. Um, yeah, I, I can't wait to see what he does for the rest of the year. Um, <laughs> I I don't know. I mean, he continues to impress you even when you know what he's capable of. Um, and I think that's a pretty special thing to have in a player. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, and I, and I just felt like it was just more efficient, a bit more disciplined, while still not losing the amazing shot making skills that he has and highlight real abilities. So he was able to, I, I feel like that's when he hits his perfect sweet spot. Cause yeah. Yeah. Cause, cause I mean, there were times last year where he was pretty stressed from Madrid to the U S open and he was, you know, like not taking some of his breakpoint chances. He was a bit erratic, uh, a bit too trigger happy, but we knew that all the other tools were there. It was just, was just you know he did was lacking experience and now he actually has that under his belt and and how he only gets better from here and I think you know he'll only get better and and yeah so it was a really good tournament for him and then I think pretty positive tournament for Medvedev overall as well because even though he was complaining you know a lot of the time during the week it didn't actually affect his level of play he did actually he impressed me a lot in the Tiafo match actually because when he squandered yeah, those yeah. seven or eight match points that was a perfect time for like Medvedev to melt down I think in the past he probably wouldn't. But he, he just moved on with it and then played a really good tiebreak. And yeah. Yeah. What did you think about the Tiafel win? I thought it was good. Um I yeah, I mean the end really impressed me because he had love for he had forty love when he served for it. Um yeah. four match points altogether. Yeah. Um and then when that goes to a tiebreak, like you have a lot of mental baggage. Um and he managed to win the tiebreak anyway. That impressed me. Um at the same time, you can see how much of a more comfortable matchup that is for Medvedev than the Alcaraz one. Um, like, I, I have always rated uh, Medvedev very highly in good matchups. So, like, I think on a hard court, he can play basically anyone except Djokovic and now Alcaraz um, and maybe a couple others on their day. And if he's at his best, then he's going to look amazing. Um, I think it's adjusting in those tougher matchups that's really going to be the test for him because sort of like we've been talking about in this Alcaraz matchup, like, what is he supposed to do? Um, like, he tried adjusting, didn't really work. Um, he's not one-dimensional, but he can be, be made to look one-dimensional by certain players. Um, and I think when that happens, that's where he's really up against the wall. Um, and I don't know if he's going to be able to get out of that situation. Yeah. That would be interesting to see, though, because it would be interesting to see if he, like gets back to the level that he showed before the final and continues to roll on in Miami, or maybe this hot streak kind of cools down a little bit and then, you know, maybe it resumes again later. 
on the hardcore server after the playseason is over. It will be interesting to see, but he definitely proved that he can win matches on a slow court. Like, it's not, you know, it's not like, let's completely write him off for the play season, but it's also like, you know, let's be realistic <laughs> about his chances. Yeah. It's like kind of somewhere uh, in between. Like, it's it, it's kind of hard to gauge, but yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, what else? Like, any other, like, kind of big takeaways, like, from the men's side before we move on to the women's? Um, I don't really think so. I mean, I think trying to think about the other players who went really deep. Um, I think Nori having a good run, another good run was impressive. Um, uh, I, we can talk about center a little bit. Um, what did you think of his performance against Alcaraz? Yeah, I thought I thought he should have won the first set, if I'm being honest. Um, because, you know, 4-2, okay, Alcaraz was up 4-2, but from then on, he really made a string of one-four stairs and then won the next, center was able to win the next three games. And then he had a set point and he didn't really read the play very well. And I felt like I felt like there was some opportunity there for him to maybe take advantage of that Alcaraz lap and lapse and he didn't wasn't quite able to do it. I do I don't think he played badly in the tiebreak at all. He actually hit a couple of really impressive shots, but Alcaraz just one upped him. And and then in the second set, I think his I think he'll have most regrets about his serving, because I don't think he served nearly as well as he, he could have. His serve first serve percentage was quite low and wasn't really um, you know, the slow courts, it was just giving Alcaraz a lot more time. It was lethal long return in the second set, especially. Uh, and he just handled the outer edges a lot better, like the, you know, the the finer parts of the forecourt or like dealing with the drop shot slice. I, I think Sinner's drop shot retrieval was better when they played at the US Open. Yeah. And I think his, I think the overall quality of the match was definitely way higher at the US Open, but I mean, if this is a considered a low quality match between these two, then, <laughs> then I think we're gonna have an amazing next ten years. So, I think overall he can be pretty pleased like about his tournament because the win against Brits really impressed me more than the yeah. more than the Alcaraz match actually. Um, but but yeah, like I think I think overall he walks away from it feeling pretty good. But maybe he has some regrets yeah. about the tight moments in the Alcaraz match. What do you think? I, I largely agree with that. I mean, I think, yeah, like he, that set point in the first set, he had a good look at a uh, kind of like cross court pass there, sent it down yeah. the line, Alcaraz read it. Um, but I mean, you know, at the end of the day, Alcaraz is just a little better, you know? So I, I think so, yeah. it's hard to be too frustrated when someone who's a bit better than you beats you, right? Like, I think it's tempting to lump center and Alcaraz in together. Um, but look, like Alcaraz has a major already. He's got yeah. three Masters, 1,000 titles. It's not um, really close when it comes to winning the big titles right now. Yeah, exactly. And I think you can see it in the level, too, and kind of the way they handle certain matchups. Like, Medvedev is a killer matchup for Sinner. Like, Sinner's yeah. done a little bit better recently, but that's really difficult for him. Alcaraz just handled it like it was nothing. Um, Sinner struggles against Tsitsipas. Tsitsipas' forehands does a lot in that matchup. Alcaraz has beaten Tsitsipas three times in a row. Um, <laughs> you know styles make matchups and everything so it's not like matchups are everything but i think you can sort of see the difference between them like alvarez is just i think a little more ruthless he's got a little bit faster um he's a like little bit better touch um a little more explosive um and across the board that makes a big difference so i still rate center very highly i think he's gonna do a lot this year that he wasn't able to do last year uh but because he's learned and because hopefully he won't get injured as much um Injuries yeah. got in his way a lot last year, but yeah, I mean, I think seven six six three kind of is a good representation of where Alvarez and Sinner are right now. Yeah, I largely agree with that. Um, I think Sinner has improved his serve, which is good. Good to see. Like, I think technically he's like 
changed up the motion a little bit. He's like cupping the racket a little bit and getting a faster extension, but it's so that helps him in terms of winning more free points. And I think the big thing is staying injury free. Like he had so many small niggles last year where he just wasn't like his ranking didn't really reflect how well he played throughout the whole year. So I hope he's able to like just stay healthy and build on this and reverse some of those head to heads because now he's actually got a couple more top five wins. I think that Fritz match, you know, probably would have lost that last year or at some points. Um, early in his career. So he, he is like kind of making incremental improvements, but Alcaraz is just on a meteoric trajectory. So it's... um, But yeah, like the, the, like you said, the matchups make tennis so compelling. So hopefully... Yeah, hopefully this will, this will continue for Sinner and you won't get discouraged by this loss. Yeah, and, and I do think that Sinner-Alcaraz rivalry is still going to be great and everything. Like, I, I think one thing Sinner has on his side is like he is not intimidated at all by Alcaraz. Um, yeah. And I think pretty much everyone else is. I mean, maybe not Djokovic, but I think Medvedev was. Um, Sinner goes in there and he believes he can win. He believes he can go toe-to-toe with him. And he does. Like, we saw it for almost five and a half hours at the U.S. Open. Um, And, you know, he lost this match in straights, but he had a set point of the first set. So um, head-to-head is still three to two. I think he's going to beat Alcaraz more in the future. Um, So, yeah, I'm, I'm excited for him as well. Yeah, I think those are largely the players that did well in Indian Wells. Yeah. Uh, pretty solid defense for Fritz, getting to the quarters and playing, a, you know, getting his teeth into the center match where he was largely getting outplayed in long rallies for the most part. And you thought, okay, his serve really has to take over over this match. And in the second set, it kind of did. That's how he got back into it. And then just came down to in the game at 4-all in the, in the third after they traded breaks early and center just was a little better. So... Yeah, I think overall, and he was, what, five in the world? I think now he'll be at 10, so I think... Yeah. Yeah, it seems about reasonable, I think. Yeah, it was always going to be a tricky title defense, and he lost to a better player. So I think he'll be disappointed, but I don't think he should be frustrated, necessarily. Um, I actually thought Felix played a very good match against Alcaraz as well in the quarters, and and that four and four score might have been a bit brutal, because... Felix was pulling off some incredible shots too, and he was yeah, definitely. And it, was a- it wasn't even close to enough. Well, like, yeah, it's it's crazy how high the bar was in that match. Because, um, mm-hmm. like you said, it was like great quality, but you could see Alcaraz was like levels above, really. Um, yeah. And I think indoor conditions suit Felix way better. Um, and this was more in Alcaraz's backyard. So, yeah, for sure. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss hiring for your small business if you're not looking for professionals on linkedin you're looking in the wrong place that's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank linkedin helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role in a given month over 70 percent of linkedin users don't even visit other leading job sites so start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Uh, but yeah, should we talk about the women's side and talk about Rebecca, yeah. Sablenka, and Iga? I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so 
if you want to start with the final, I think um, so. Like really exciting uh, match, exciting scoreline. Um, I think that first set tiebreak like speaks for itself. Um, I, I guess the first question I had for you is, um, what role do you think the conditions played in this match? Because I was thinking the slower conditions probably helped Rabakina a little bit. Because when I was thinking back to their Australian Open final. What I remember from the second two sets in that match was Sabalenka hitting the ball so hard. And it was rushing Rabakina to the extent that it almost felt like she was getting knocked off her feet. And so I think it... And that was sort of when her forehand fell apart a little bit, just because it was being absolutely tortured by like these 90-mile-an-hour missiles from Sabalenka. Um, and it seems like on a slower court, she was able to um, get a little bit more time, um, and that almost helped her, if not dictate, like stay in neutral rallies a little more. Yeah, she definitely was able to stay in rallies a lot better than she was in, in Australia, where I felt like Sabalenka's defense and her ability to scramble and get balls back and kind of extend the rallies was going to help her. Was going to help her, and especially like because she served so well in that match, Sabalenka, uh, with all you know the, that entire tournament really. But like in that match, she had seventeen aces and you know seven double faults, and in this match, it kind of reverted a little bit back to yeah you know, Sabalenka, and that was a little sad to see because. I think she had like seven double faults before the first set tiebreak even began. And at that point, I was, I, I think actually it was very tricky for Sabalenka in the wind. Like there was one side of this court that was really, really windy and Sabalenka was playing against the wind. So it was behind her back. And with that motion that sometimes, you know, those, I guess, uh, issues can sometimes flare up on the serve, like the yips. So like when she was, double faulting a lot on that side like she 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 did really well to get a break in the first set but then she immediately gave it back like a couple of double faults a couple of loose errors and then Rubakina was ready I just felt like Rubakina had a such a steady level throughout for most of the most of the match and she was just dictating like she was hitting such clean strikes off of anything remotely attackable from Sabalenka's serve and our ground game and Sabalenka was having to do a bit too much to make up the deficit of double faults because I feel like that actually really got in her head like when she was in the tiebreak and it was a 13-11 tiebreak and they both had like five set points it was crazy and every time one of them went up a mini break and they had a set point on their serve they made a first ball error after after the serve and it was just like who wants to win this tiebreak because it was just so tense and so brutal and it was it seems crazy that they were able to play some of their best tennis in a slam final and then in the in this final which is still a really big occasion and the conditions are very tricky it was just like who's gonna not lose it versus who's going to take it. And at the end, yeah. uh, I feel like Sabalenka's just, uh, just uh, like a couple too many loose errors. And usually it came down to like, I think six, five in the tie break, she had a double fault, like eight, seven, she had another double fault. And these were all like, once she's got the mini break and once she lost that set, I was like, I don't care who you are. It's going to be impossible to like regroup after that. Cause it was like an hour, 20 minutes set in like brutal conditions. And now she has to serve again starting the second set on the same side where she usually struggles with the wind. And then that's what happened. She got broken in the first game. And, and Rubakina, to her credit, like really raised her level in, even in the start of the second set. And she was just timing. She was hitting these forehand down the line returns off of wide serves from Sabalenka. And Rubakina, I think, is underrated at her um, ability to hit. Like when she's stretched in the outer thirds, I always thought like her defense isn't as good as Rina's. But when she times the ball because she has such good reach, She's able to like really extend through and actually like use Sabalenka's pace. She did that so well, like to get. She, that's how she broke back in the first set and how she got the break in the second, with that forehand return winner, down the line most of the time. 
she she's a phenomenal returner. Like her her thing yeah. at Australian Open was just like torturing second serves. I remember um, I was at her semifinal with Azarenka. I think yep. Azarenka was like six for twenty seven or something um, on or like three for twenty one, um, something like that on second serve points one. Um, in this match, it, seems, it looks like uh, on Google scores, um, Sabalenka won 44% of her second serve points, Rybakina won 59%. Um, she's just absolutely ruthless as a returner and um, so unflappable mentally. I mean, she was down a break in that first set, um, down a bunch of set points, and like you said, she got some help from Sabalenka, but she's just like impossible to, I think, bother mentally. And then in the second set, she only like picks up speed. Like I think it, at the Australian Open, she... Um, that was how she beat Azarenka, like really tight, close, high quality first set. And then the second set, she just um, like loosened up even more, started hitting the ball even harder, uh, and Azarenka had no chance. I mean, she was up uh, two breaks at the end of the second set. Sabalenka got one of them back, but uh, yeah. it was too late for it to matter. Yeah, and Rabakina didn't even serve that well. Like in the first set, like, or actually throughout the whole match, her first set percentage was quite low. It was like 54. 52%. Yeah. But then... You know, every single time that she made a first serve, she made it. She really made it count. Like I feel like her plus one ball was really strong, and a lot of the times she was. And Sabalenka, I think, probably should have been done a little bit better in that department once she did make the first serve because she did make her first serves a lot more often. But she just wasn't quite getting that same purchase. And I think just, I just feel like the the double fault thing was very mental and kind of creeped into other parts of her game and her crowd strokes that. In a game of the small margins against Rubakina, she just wasn't able to have that clear head like she did at the in the Australian Open, where I think she only had two double faults in the last two sets after hitting five. Yeah, first set. one of them on championship point. Yeah, so there you go. Like, yeah, was, that was a bit uh, unfortunate for her, but like Rubakina, I think throughout this tournament was just like against Shantek, she was just absolutely flawless and. That was, uh, you know, I was at that batch live, and I just thought, okay, like, Rebecca's level has to drop at some point. There's no way she can't sustain this, and she did, like, throughout the whole time. I think from start to finish, that was probably her best match of the year so far. And, and it's a high bar, too. I, I think yeah. you nailed it with the small margins. Like, yeah, you can say that Sapolinka made a few mistakes, but... At the same time, when she beat Rubakina at the Australian Open, um, the last two sets were absolute peak Sabalenka. And so yeah. I think what this match tells you is, like, she kind of has to be at her absolute peak if, you, if she wants to beat Rubakina. Um, yep. Like, if you're missing that, like, 5-10%, then Rubakina is going to, like, punish you pretty effectively. Um, yeah. And, yeah, that, I mean, that Shviantek match, like, you know, Ego mentioned a, a rib issue after the match. It's impossible yep. to know how much that had an effect. Certainly it did have an effect, but... I mean, 6-2, 6-2. And Sviatek was destroying everyone before that. I mean, she beat Andrescu in straight sets. Really good match. Um, she destroyed uh, Raducanu. Um, I, yeah. yeah, I mean, like, and she just can't hold serve against Rubakina. Like, at, at the Australian Open, too, she was up 3-0 in the second set um, and lost at 6-4. Um, and this is what I mean about Rubakina being, like, such a ruthless returner. Like, she's going to kill those second serves like every time uh, and I was and, I was watching this match live and I was thinking like okay you know surely Iga can get it out of Rebecca's strike zone but as soon as I found out that the match was at night I was like okay that's trouble because Rebecca in these because the ball doesn't bounce as high at night you know and it stays lower and it's it's even slower and that just gives Rebecca more time to connect 
and she's yeah. not gonna and she's gonna you know obviously hold her own on serve and she's gonna win so many free points even against the Shantek return. So I just thought, okay, this is this is like Shantek has to zone and just be like perfect right from this from the word go. And it just like didn't happen. The moment she got broken, I feel like mentally Shantek just completely went away, and it was really unlike anything I'd seen before. To where like, you know, she loses that first set six two. I thought, okay, at two five, if she can hold her serve here, mm-hmm. you know, maybe she has a chance of getting back into this. But when she yeah, lost her serve, she got one break back, right? Um, at one. Point. Yeah, that was that was at the end. That was at the second set. Where I was, was about to give okay. Daigle. Um, so it was really really uncompetitive. Like I thought, okay, you know, Shantek would have a plan B. She could probably, you know, mix things up a little bit more. She was trying to outhead Rabakina, and I just don't think that's a good, that was a good strategy at all. And the rip thing is interesting because I did see her. You know, she seemed to move quite well in the beginning of the match, where she had two spectacular like backhand passing shots, and that was to get break point to get the break back. Like I think it was three one, Rabakina serving, and Shantik was able to get it to break point. Like didn't break that game. But I was like, okay, this is still like, you know, she can be in this. And then she was not in it for like 30 minutes. And Rebecca and I just pulled totally ahead. And I just felt like it was extremely mental. And it was strange. For, I mean, that's kind of been the story of Shirantek this year. Like she's either winning easily or losing easily. So it's not, we haven't really seen that kind of resistance. Like that's what made her US Open run so impressive. Like, because yeah. she was not at her best. But like most of those matches in that tournament, like she was down a set in a break against Niemeyer. She was down in that. You know, and then at times in the second set against Jabor in the final, she was down 2-4 in the third against Sabalinka, but she came back and she had extra gears. But something about Sriantek's mentality right now, when other players are stepping up, I just feel like she's lost a little bit of what she had last year. And she could still get it back. And maybe the rib issue, like, did play a role in that. You know, it's impossible to really tell. Like, I don't know, you know, exactly how much of a factor it played. But certainly, uh, certainly that was jarring to see her, like, not have a plan B. I think I, yeah, I and mean, I think part of it could just be like kind of the experiencing career arc she's had so far. Like her first role in Arrow of Sight, all she dominated. Like there's basically not a single moment of adversity during that. And then during the entire streak, there was like maybe one or two scrappy wins, right? Like um, like early that year when she had that Australian Open match against Kanepi, I remember thinking like, oh, this is great for her because she won with her C game. Like, this is going to be so good going forward. But then, like, she didn't need her C game for the next, like, five months or whatever. Um, So, like, maybe she's just not really used to this yet. Like, she's still super young. And, like, she's been on tour for a few years. And it's not as dramatic as, like, uh, Radupanu having, like, never played a three-setter until, like, pretty recently. Um, But, I yeah, I don't know. I think it's tough to get used to. And especially since she can beat almost everyone on tour so easily, I think, when those two, three, four bad matchups come up. It's kind of difficult to know what to do. I mean, against Robakina, my suggestion would sort of, like you said, she has to zone. Um, but, like, low margin aggression is not her thing. Like, she's built a three-major title career on high margin aggression. And so I think when you're forced to do something else, it's extremely difficult because it's not what you are, you know? It's like with... um. Uh, you know, Nadal Djokovic is not the same thing as Rabakina Spiontek, like very different matchups. But it's like when Djokovic was beating Nadal constantly, and it's like everyone is saying, like, yeah, Nadal has to hit his forehand like a foot from the line. Like, that's not what Nadal did to become the player he was. And it took him a really long time to start doing that because I think it's it's such a fundamental well, fundamental is the wrong word. Um it's such like a an adjustment to like your identity as a player almost, and I and so I think that's really difficult for 
someone to do sort of like murray being more aggressive too it's like everyone has been pleading with him to be more aggressive for years but like that's not what he is it's not what he's ever been um and so it's a really it's like changing a piece of who you are i guess and so i think this is not to say that Sviantec won't ever be able to make these adjustments but yeah i think it's really tough like when you play a certain way and that's good enough to beat like 95 percent of your opponents um it's really hard to change that yeah, and now she's coming up against players who I think have more belief, and they're not scared of her, and they yeah. they they have the kind of weapons with the big strike and big serve to like take advantage of some and just rush her. Like, and she looked rushed for most of the match, and she was kind of hitting forehands like on her back foot, and it was mainly the forehand that broke down quite a bit. Like the backhand was still kind of hanging in for some points, but she just wasn't able to like. Normally, she's able to get on that baseline and just move you side to side and just ruthlessly put you away, but. Against Rubakina, Rubakina just refused to get in those exchanges, and it just felt like, I mean, even in the Australian Australia match, every time Shantik was able to get like that baseline rhythm, and extend rallies and kind of use her good footwork and like her ability to defend and you know get back to neutral, there she was at least even or winning like majority of rallies that went over nine shots. And in this match, it's like none of the rallies even went there, and when they did. Shantik just didn't have that rhythm or confidence because Rebecca just took it away from her. She just stripped her of time, basically. And that's really hard to do on a slow court, but Rebecca was so flawless throughout. And Rebecca just seems so unfazed. Like, every time she plays these matches, it's like just completely ice cold, like, under pressure. Just gives you nothing. Like, yeah. She could, for- play in like a, she could play in a hurricane and, like, her expression would not change anymore yeah. than it does now. Um, and yeah, I, I do think the problem for Sviantec is like now the blueprint is out there, right? Like, you know, you have to crush the ball, take away her time. You know, the forehand is not that dangerous when it doesn't have time to load up. You know, the serve is going to be vulnerable. Um, and it's like now, as we've seen, there are multiple players who can kind of execute that game plan. As yeah. difficult as it I, is. I would so say like there's still only like three. Like, like, I would say like she's still, you know, she's still a tier one player. Like, there's still her. Oh, absolutely. Rubakina, um, Sabalenka, and Krachikova. I feel like those are just the three. Right. Like, I mean, well, and Krajikova is a little different too because she's not as hard of a hitter. I think with her, it's more yeah. going toe to toe with Shviantek at her own game. Um, but yeah. you know, now that you mentioned tears, um, who do you think is the best player in the world on the WTA right now? Um, I think uh, you know, obviously Shviantek is still ranked number one. She's like not losing early anywhere. Um, yeah. I don't even know if it's like her form is ditched really, but. Rabakina's beaten her twice. Um, we've now had two massive Sabalenka Rabakina finals. Um, do either one of them have an argument as being the best player in the world? I think I would still go with Sabalenka just because she won the Australian Open. She did her only loss before this was Krijikova, who won Dubai, and even that match she bageled Krijikova. So, and then in this in this tournament, yeah, like Rabakina beat her, but she won the more important match in the Australian Open final. So I still think it's. Probably you just have to go by the race, and I just think it's Sabalenka, Rubakina, and then Shantek probably, and then I think you still have to put Krajikova in there. I think it was unfortunate though that Krajikova was playing Sabalenka the fourth round because of ranking yeah. is, you know, not there. And I think it'll, the same thing will happen in Miami, so maybe that result will flip or something. But we'll see because, like Krajikova, that was one of the best runs I've ever seen to a Masters or a WTA 1000 title. Like she beat five players in the top 15. It was crazy. So, yeah, it's it's interesting. Like, I think so. I do think Sviantek still has an argument, just because, like, I think on the clay, it's going to be that much harder to beat her. Like, yeah, don't really see Rabakina doing it 
because movement is going to play so much more of a factor. Um, I think Sabalenka will also have a tougher time. Um, would love the, to see the only thing about the clay though for the WTA. Times. Yeah. The only thing about the clay for the WTA is I feel like apart from Roland Garros and maybe Rome, mm-hmm. like the big hitters will still have a chance in the other tournaments. Just because yeah, that's you have the altitude. Stuttgart is right. indoors. Yeah. Houston is green clay, which is just plays completely different. And then you have like the other smaller tournaments, which most of these players are probably not going to play, but it just feels yeah. like Roland Garros is like the main one. Like I don't like, Rebecca has actually made a quarterfinal at Roland Garros and she did beat Serena in twenty twenty one. So, yeah, and it does have. Did, a great she, play, did she play? Did she play Sviantec that tournament too? Um, did, like no, I maybe I'm like imagining this. Like, no, I don't. I don't think so. I think she. And I, I, I definitely remember her losing in the quarters. Um, because I know she beat Serena in the third round. And, I'm trying to think, who did? What did she lose to in, uh, in the quarters? I think it was probably in Jinkova. Oh, okay. It was like one of those nine seven in the thirds matches. Yeah, there were a lot of those that tournament. Yeah, I think it was probably a Jacoba and then probably a Jacoba ended up getting to the final. And that seems like a match she could have won because went down all the way down to the wire. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's true. Um, I mean, I, I do think at Roland Garros, like the big one, um, there are more favorable conditions for Sviantec, but even there, it's still best of three. So, yeah. Yeah, so I, I'm not saying that, like, she's a lock to win, but. I, and yeah, and Rabakina is great on grass too, and Savalenko is pretty good on grass. So I think they have kind of a an all circles thing going. Um, I think Rabakina has got an argument for it too. Um, yeah, honestly, like uh, Australian Open finalist, Wimbledon champion. Um, depending on how she does on the clay, um, you know, uh, now Indian. But it's a good question because, like, if you looked at the WTA last year, it was kind of a lot more unstable and chaotic because of like because Barty was leaving, and then you had, you know, you like you had. Collins in there who kept getting injured and you had Pedosa who was in good form at the time but then she got injured and kind of fell off a little bit and then you had Contivate same kind of story but now I feel like you look at this race or you look at the race on the WTA right now and it's like okay this like this feels legit like this feels like the top four players right now and then you also have a really nice group of like tier two people with like Pabula and Goff and Sakari and these are all like like you could see them at the WTA finals like yeah, you could see this like continuing like for the rest of the year, and it, yeah, it doesn't I, feel like anyone can just win these tournaments. It feels like there's a group of maybe eight players now, and maybe more more like four or five. But yeah, and you're going to have to go through a few of the others to win as well. Yeah, I mean, um, I mean, Rubakina beat Fiontek and uh, Sabalenka. So yeah, um, yeah, I, I mean, clearly, uh, Sabalenka. And then there's also players like then there's right? also players like Andrescu, who's like if we're yeah. Forms anything to go by, like she's improving. Raducanu is improving. Uh, Fernandez, I think, can improve as well. Yeah, and I, I, think, I think she will. I think Mukova. I mean, if she just stays healthy, like she's she's really dangerous too. Almost beat Rebecca in the quarterfinals here. Yeah. So I think. Yeah, I mean, I I think it's a great time. Like. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I. I, I'm tempted to still say Sviantec is the best player in the world, just because she's still got that number one ranking. Like she's still. Yeah. Probably not gonna. She's more. She still has a sizable lead, like yeah. around three thousand points or something, because she was so good last year. Right. And I still think um, she'll defend most of that on the clay, because yeah, I just think the French Open is going to be a different story. But yeah, but but at the same time, like there are those two, three players who like yeah. can beat her and have done it like multiple times pretty recently. So it's like I think she's going to have to make adjustments. Um, she's already not as dominant at number one as she was last year. Um. 
which I think is like good for the tour. Um, not that like having her be so dominant was a bad thing. I think that was amazing to watch. Um, yeah. But we're getting rivalries now, um, which I think is fantastic. Um, like after the Australian Open, um, I think everyone was saying like, I'd already love to see a rematch at this final. We got one already with a different result. Um, so I think that introduces some more intrigue to the matchup. Because um, this was Rabakina's first win over Sabalenka too, right? Yeah, this was her first win. And all the yeah. previous matches before were three setters, but all won by Sabalenka. So, yeah, I, I think that's great to have because now you know it can go either way. Um, yeah, I, I'm super excited to see what happens next. Um, I mean, like, can you imagine how chaotic's the wrong word, but like, how many people are going to have a shot at the U.S. Open? Um, yeah, I could see a lot of like that's usually the one that's the most open anyway. But like, yeah, yeah, that could. Like if if there's gonna be any kind of like an underdog story or like a anything close to what we had in 2021, it will probably still be that slam, for sure. For sure. But I, it's also like you have so many players who are so good on hardcore right now. Yeah. Like I think it's just gonna be like an amazing battle royale between like sort of like that set of like eight players like you were talking about. Um. Yeah. I just hope everyone stays healthy. And I do sort of like that. Like you know, golf is very consistent. Google is really consistent. Soccer is really consistent. So at least. You kind of know what you're getting from those three right now. And then, you know, if you have these four or you, like if you want to win any tournament right now, you have to go through at least two or three of them. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's um, yeah, I'm I'm really excited for both tours, to be honest. Um, I, I won't do my Sunshine Double Ranch right now, but I'm um, I'm excited for the play to start just because then we're building to a major again. Um and we can sort of see who positions themselves well for that and then who can make the most of their their momentum. Um, I think Alcaraz and Spiontek are still, like, carrying the torches as, like, the, you know, mag- magnetic young stars on both tours. Um, I think they're bringing a lot of ice to the sport and will continue doing that. Um, I think I think we're in a good place right now. Yeah. I think so, too. Yeah, I mean, overall, I feel like, you know, on paper, a lot of these matchups look good. Like before they before they started, particularly the quarterfinals onwards, and they didn't like all plan out to be a really good high quality or like we didn't get that many three setters, mm-hmm. but like we got a lot of data from this, where I feel like, you know, this like really tells the story of like where we're at every year and because this tournament, you know, in March it's like kind of isolated, like Indian Wells and Miami are like their own thing, like two weeks each, right. like you know, like you said, like not really leading up to a slam, like it just kind of feels like all the spotlight is on here, like in America for tennis at once at this moment. So I, I'm glad to see because like Indian Wells, that place was packed. Like in the first weekend, I think there were like 45,000 people on that Saturday. I could barely get in. It was, it was crazy. And I think some of that is like the Alcaraz effect. Some of that is like how the tournament is marketed. Some of that is like how great the facility is and like how fan friendly it is and how much the players love it and all of that. And that's why like, Man, it just takes like front and center stage, and then and then you just go to Miami, and it's like it, it it's a similar kind of feel. Like at one point that was called the fifth slam, and then now this has been called the fifth slam for like over fifteen years, and it's like I think it's like not actually like I, I don't actually personally believe it's a fifth slam, but I do think it's yeah. like it, it's an auto with the best. Title, but like yeah, you see why it has it. Yeah, yeah. Like you can you can kind of see like why it has that sort of bigger appeal. It almost, it's almost like Disneyland. Like you know how they say it's like the happiest place on earth. That's like how they market right. this tournament. 
Yeah, that that's fantastic. I, like, I, I'm glad you got to go. I saw you got some photos with like some pretty awesome people. You got Loanda, Rob yeah. Lamber, like yeah, that was that was that was wild because like I was just you know me and Peter were just eating lunch and Peter's not allowed to get um for those of you for those of our listeners who don't know Peter is one of the hosts of Brain Musings, and he actually works at the tournament as a vlogger, and like behind the scenes he he does the stats and um for for logs on the scores for these matches like in the booth. And he and I were just eating lunch. And then out of nowhere, we just see like Rod Labor just walking on the lawn. And we're just like, and he's he's going up to Lindsay Davenport and their family because they were eating lunch next to us. And so, and so I'm like, Peter, like, should I, should I go up? You know, should I like, should I like introduce myself? You know, this guy is like, this guy is like, you know, <laughs> basically the father of tennis. Like, should I just, you know, what should I say to him, Peter? And then, you know, he's like, just go for it. I believe in you. You can do it. You know, <laughs> I just went up to him and he had like two agents next to him. You know, they were like, they were like, you know, just walk. We're in a hurry. Like, you know, just come walk with us. And then I think like there were like three people who had just ran ahead of me and got selfies. And then I was just like, okay, I, I need to at least say hi, even if I don't get a picture, you know, <laughs> I thought I finally, you know, I was able to get a picture and he was really nice. And then I told him like, thank you for everything you've done for tennis. Cause he kind of paved the way for all these generations that we love yeah. to watch. So that was that was awesome. That was maybe the highlight of my trip. Like, yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, I mean, he—I don't know if "kickstarted" is the right word, but he like had a big hand in like the open era, like being a thing. Like, yeah, the last guy to do the you know calendar slam. So, yeah, and much more than that. But yeah, so yeah, but better than Novak Djokovic as twenty twenty one proved. Yeah. Right? I mean, uh, he's the original. He's yeah. the original goat, right? I mean, right, yeah. we can just annoy all the victory fan base at once. Like it's yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, number one on uh Jeff Sackman's uh tennis yeah. twenty eight list, right? Yeah. yeah, there you go, the perfect metric. <laughs> yeah, because I don't necessarily agree with that. That's a, a topic for another time. Yeah, that's um, any any closing thoughts before we wrap up? Um, no. What what would you say is like your favorite? Was your like favorite moment of this tournament? Lane, like, do you have one? That's a good question. Um, yeah, I wasn't able to sit down and watch as many matches as I might have liked. Um, yeah, I think the time zone was really tricky for you as well. I, yeah, um, I, I feel like I watched some more stuff early on. Um, you know, um, I, honestly, just watching Alvarez do his thing is pretty awesome. Like, it's a boring, yeah. it's a boring answer, but I'm just so glad he's healthy. Like when he's racing around the court. Um, his highlight reels always, I think, poke a little further out of that tennis bubble than yeah. the average one when they go around on Twitter. Um, uh, yeah, I'm glad he's back. How about you? Yeah, for me, one is like I, you know, I actually didn't get to watch Carlos courtside, but for me, it might have been. What was it for me? Okay, yeah, this is like really random, but I, I, I watched, um, I watched Kvitova versus Ostapenko. Yeah, that was in, in honor of this podcast, you know. In honor of this podcast, I have to choose that one because <laughs> two bagels, <laughs> two bagels back to back. When do you ever see that, you know? And then, and then all of a sudden, you know, uh, Kavitova goes up four love in the third set, and then takes, uh, and then Ostapenko takes a medical timeout and like gets her fever, gets her temperature checked, and it was like, <laughs> you know, we were like, are you like just doing this to bring the momentum? Because that's what it feels like. And then, and then Kavitova wins the next four games, and then she takes a medical timeout. And then we're just like, okay, so now, now that we don't, we don't get six love, love, six, six love with our final score line or whatever it is, we need to get this to a tie break. And then we need the tie break score to be 7 0. <laughs> and then we'll have the best scoring 
image of all time, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it didn't quite have it didn't quite have a pan out that way because it was one six four. She played amazing the next two games. And then and then but we just got to see something like so crazy when like two because we have both these two players were like stamp champions were like basically a red line to win their majors and they can't play together at the same time so watching one of them <laughs> the other was just like was just amazing and equally like <laughs> jarring at the same time it was yeah just, that, that it was is such crazy. an emblematic score score line like yeah Oh, yeah, that that's fantastic. I mean, Kavitipa's run was super fun, too, because she had all those match yeah. point saves against Pagula, too. That was crazy. That was that was really impressive. Like, she finished yeah. it off with, like, a sort of volley, and then she had, like, these ridiculous forehands to, like, see match points. Like, I don't think Pagula did anything wrong with those match points. Kavitipa just redlined the net forehand winners. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I think Pagula was, like, pretty chill after, too. Like, with yeah. the or anything, they had a nice exchange at the net. Um, I, know. I love it when that happens. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, uh, really fun tournament. Um, excited for Miami, and then uh, and then it's play. So um, yeah, I will try not to take as long of a hiatus as I did before this podcast uh, before my next one. But um, yeah. so yeah, we'll we'll talk again soon for sure. Yeah, it was really fun recapping. And for listeners, they can follow you at Tennis Nation, right? That's your handle, and also Popcorn Tennis. Yep. Um, so yeah, check out all the good pieces over there then you can follow me at Vodshi2k you can follow Andre at Rollenberg Andre and you can follow us at Tennis and Beatles Official which is our Twitter name um, and I think that's about it and if you have any questions or you want to get more questions of yours answered or you have anything you want to let us know about these episodes then yeah feel free to DM us and we'll always be available and I'm actually doing an episode with Steve Flink on Tuesday so alright excited for that so yeah, we're excited for that. So keep an eye out for that. And then, yeah, and other shows as well. And then obviously we'll do a Miami recap too. So so yeah, cheers wherever you are in the world this thing. And yeah, thanks Owen for coming on. Yeah, of course. Um, like again, hopefully I'll be on again sooner than uh, after that long break. But um, yeah, yeah uh, see you next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.